Hello and welcome to this EG podcast live from the EG ESG Summit at the Hamyard Hotel. This recording is in partnership with Environment Bank. EG's Head of Content, Emily Wright, sits with Alexa Culver, General Counsel of Environment Bank, and Faye Dassey Sutton, ESG and Sustainability Manager of FEC Development Management Limited, to discuss the realities and implications of biodiversity net gain which will soon become a legal requirement for planning permissions. Pour yourself a drink, listen in and enjoy. We're moving on to the next phase of the summit and um, I'm really excited about this one. So it's a panel discussion slash sort of fireside chat, make it cosier, um, around the realities and implications of biodiversity net gain. And I'm joined by two people who are absolutely perfectly placed to comment on that. So Alexa Culver, General Counsel, Environment Bank, and Faye Darcy-Sutton, ESG and Sustainability Manager, FEC Development Management. So we're going to get into this discussion in just a minute, but before we do, let's open the floor up to you both, two, three minutes each, a bit of an overview as to what it is that you're really looking into at the moment, what it is that you do. We've just been having a really interesting chat, which I don't think you meant to be in your opening <laughs> uh, statement, but I was like, Put that in there too. Really interesting about how, how the business works and, and everything. So, um, Alexa, let's start with you. So, hello, I'm Alexa Culver, General Counsel at Environment Bank. And Environment Bank is a, uh, a company that's been around since 2006, founded by Professor David Hill, a really respected ecologist from Oxford University, who was determined to find a way of making it predictable, possible and affordable for developers to leave nature in a better state than they found it. And it's taken a long time to eventually get to the Environment Act, which now makes it, or will from the 1st of February 2024, will make it a mandatory requirement that for pretty much all developments in England, bar a few exceptions which will come in a bit later, a developer must uh, provide, not only replace the biodiversity that they have lost through their development, but deliver at least 10% back on top, deliver a 10% gain. So our company has grown from a, a, a more traditional ecological consultancy to one that is setting up habitat banks across the country with a national team of land agents and ecologists right the way from Hadrian's Wall, which you found romantic and lovely, all the way down to Newquay, not Penzance, I've okay. got that wrong. Oh, well, um, and it still yeah. works. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we're here to work with developers to help them balance and understand what their costs of delivering on-site biodiversity net gains are as against to obtaining off-site biodiversity units from providers like us. Um, we're here to help developers all along the journey. We've got two uh, genius town, uh, RTPI planners here at the front, my cheerleaders, who are here to help hold developers' hands through the planning process. Um, and we're here to deliver those off-site biodiversity gains when they're needed and to support developers with their on-site biodiversity gains. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and Faye? So thank you very much for having me here. So Faye Darstatton, FEC Development Manager, I'm the ESG and Sustainability Manager. Um, so FEC um, is headquartered and um, this is in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but we expanded into the UK in 2012. Um, and we've got some pretty exciting projects happening at the moment. We are building a mixed-use uh, residential scheme, which will have a hotel, health centre and educational facility on the Isle of Dogs. That's about 630 units. And then up in uh, Manchester, we've got a joint venture with Manchester City Council uh, to, de to deliver 15,000 homes over the next 20 years. Um, 
the way, way we look at this, you know, biodiversity underpins human life um, from the air that we breathe to the, the food and water that we eat and drink. Um, however, obviously, biodiversity is in a state of rapid decline. I think in 2020, WWF reported that we'd seen a decrease globally in vertebrate species about 68% between 1968 and 2016. Um, and this poses risks for not just our business, but wider businesses in general through the potential increase on raw material costs, all the way to um, you know, supply chain challenges, and then there's unique challenges for industries such as tourism, which rely on kind of beautiful landscapes. At FEC, one of our main strategic pillars is managing our environmental footprint. So we aim to act responsibly through sustainable practices, behaviours and innovative technology. And it's those sustainable practices, behaviours and innovative solutions that we're going to need to tackle biodiversity net gain. Um, you know, we have to be aware, though, that there are some challenges at the moment within development. So one of the key things is, is making things stack up, the viability challenge. Um, you know, we're seeing increasing land costs, increasing build costs, requirement for more affordable housing, but we've got to keep service charges low and deliver placemaking whilst delivering high quality build, but drive towards net zero carbon and now also adding biodiversity net gain into that mix. Um, so there are challenges there. We're, we're going to be required to review our kind of pipeline as to what that looks like and how we can integrate biodiversity within our master plans. We're going to have to upskill our teams um, and then also remain cognizant of how we manage that biodiversity in the long term, which is a complete shift to what we've had to do previously. Um, we're going to have to educate communities because they're so used to seeing, you know, they've become accustomed to nice, green, stripy, very neat lawns. And we're moving away from that now and we need to help them and educate them to embrace the maybe slightly messier but incredibly valuable spaces for biodiversity to thrive. Um, biodiversity net gain is going to be a huge mind shift change in, within our organisations, within the communities, but also um, on our developments. Um, but despite the challenges, you know, where we stand is ultimately biodiversity net gain hopefully will be a step towards a more prosperous future where we can create a more sustainable and livable world. Um, so there was a lot there, which I'm sure we'll unpack <laughs> as we go through. Fantastic. Thank you very much. There was a lot there, but it was all, I think, you know, it gave a great structure to what we're going to talk about now, as you as you said. So that's that's brilliant and perfect. And thank you very much for the Hadrian's Wall to <laughs> Newquay, <laughs> not Penzance. Um, yeah, that was great. So... Um, I wanted to sort of go into a few of the, it's a bit of an insight on, on the policy side of things. And um, Alexa, you, you kind of gave an overview, really, when you were doing your introduction um, around, you know, 1st of February, what this all means. But is there, is there any more detail that you think that we need to sort of delve into? Any nuances at all or anything that... Yeah, so the, the real um, nuance of the legislation and what developers need to get used to kind of all hinges around the DEFRA metric. And really one of the first steps in developing any kind of high integrity offsetting system that doesn't fall into scandal and disgrace like many can, is that you have a universally applicable metric that you use to measure the losses that have occurred and use that to measure the gains you are putting back. And it is the use of that universal metric that underpins a high integrity offsetting system. And in that metric, there are attempts to try to recognise and mitigate against some of the other impacts on uh, the environment that development can create. So, for example, 
the metric recognises that there is temporal risk. If you're getting rid of a tree that's been around for 15 years and you're putting a new one back, there's the chance it won't thrive. There's the chance it won't reach that level of maturity. If you are ripping away a meadow and you're putting new meadow in its place somewhere else, for example, you know, there is the risk that that won't succeed or flourish or thrive or reach the level of distinctiveness that the original meadow was at. So the Defrometric tries to recognise all of that through applying certain calculators to look at the temporal or spatial risk, time to target risk. So it recognises that you might be developing here, it might not be possible to put the right uh, habitat types within your development boundary. It often can be, but sometimes it isn't. Then you can put your gains for nature somewhere else. That way we're raising the net baseline of the nature across the country, even if it's not all quite going right into the development boundary. So again, the Defrometric recognises that if you're delivering your gains for nature a bit further away than the development boundary, then there's a recognition you need to deliver a bit more nature to make up for the fact that you are doing it a bit further away from where the losses occurred. Or if you're putting the nature back after you've incurred the losses, the metric will recognise that there is a you've got to rebalance that and deliver more gains for nature than you might otherwise do. So there's nuance and art in all of that that will really inform your strategic approach to what you can put on site, what's manageable on site, recognising that that needs to be managed for upwards of 30 years to comply with the Environment Act requirements. So very different to your typical landscape plant it at the right time, a couple of years later, we'll let it do what it wants to do. This needs to be actively managed for the biodiversity to thrive and flourish. So all of that plays into a lot of the careful work that FEC and others are doing to create brilliant places for people, let the nature work properly within that where it's reasonable and proportionate and possible. And then there are providers like us coming along to help with the overspill so that you're still able to deliver those gains for nature and not be constrained at scrabbling around for bits of land and trying to overwork it and not really delivering the gains for nature that we're looking for. I can't actually remember the question. That's it, about policy. That's it. So that was me going into the metric, but in a way that kind of really affects the strategy and the policy really is do what you can to avoid loss. Where you can't avoid the loss, deliver it on site if you can. If you can't deliver it on site, then deliver it off site. And that's the sort of benchmark there. You've got to avoid the loss first. You can't just uh, cut and run. You've got to really think about what you're doing. And Faye, from the from the development side of things, development perspective, you know, how how do you how do you see these policies being, you know, uh, rolled out? And do you think that it's something that we're going to see a, a widespread appreciation for and acceptance of? I mean, I think we have to, right? Fundamentally, this is the right thing to be doing. We cannot continue to ignore nature's place within our whole kind of ecosystem and the whole way that we, we operate. I think what's really encouraging is that it is part of the planning process. So mm -hmm. it has to be thought about up front, um, which I think is very encouraging. However, I do think that, you know, there are going to have been developers who may have potentially bought land that haven't necessarily gone through the planning process yet. And they're not going to have necessarily considered this as an additional cost, maybe because they bought it two, three, four years ago, whatever it is. Um, so I think there's going to be some challenges there. And I, I think 
there's also going to be different levels of maturity across the industry. And, mm. um, you know, in some of the conversations I've been having, some people go, yeah, biodiversity net gain, know all about that. And then others go, one second, take it back a step. Actually, what does that mean for me? I think what Alex was saying in regards to the hierarchy is really important about making sure that we avoid loss where we can. I think it's going to encourage us to think quite creatively. And I, I was listening to the session before this saying that we need to think differently. And I think that theme very much continues through to biodiversity. We need to change the way that we've thought about it previously. It is going to be a consideration at planning. You're not going to be able to get through your planning process without making sure that this is thought about, making sure that this is a well-rounded strategic approach. Um, and any kind of failure to do so would lead to potential delays, which delays money. You know, we definitely mm. don't want any of those. Um, and do you think that there is, as it stands at the moment, enough of a realisation within the sector that, that, this is, that this is the reality? And you said quite rightly, you know, well, we've got to do this. Um, mm. And I absolutely agree with that. But in terms of some of the, the businesses that might, you said you speak to some businesses who are like, yep, know all about that, and some who ask you to go back a step. The ones that are asking to go back a step and then the ones that maybe are even further behind than that. Do you think that there is going to be a bit of a shock to the system come February? I mean, potentially, I think we've, we've focused on, you know, if we, if we take it way back to, to kind of pre-Paris, you know, we were talking about recycling bins and squabbling about whether we can have a recycling bin in an office. We've then, <laughs> we then moved on to looking at carbon and, and the embodied carbon and operational carbon and what that means. I think this is the next evolution in the sustainability mm -hmm. journey, and I actually think biodiversity is having its moment. I think that's going to be scary. I think that's okay to be scary because it's... A little bit unknown, you know, especially in regards to what Alex was saying, there does carry risk of, well, one second, what if, with all best endeavours, you know, we we plan to have, we plan to mitigate, you know, a percentage of it, we then plan to make sure that there's a percentage on site, and then we plan to have, you know, a percentage off site. Well, what if part of that strategy fails? Like, what happens then? Mm. And it's going to take time for us to get to that point to understand actually what level of, you know, um, buffer we need to have within our strategy to make sure that we're delivering that. Um, so I think there might be a little bit of a shock to system. I think upcoming guidance, um, more guidance would always be much appreciated by the industry. Yeah, due in about 20 days, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Which After is, being promised for many, many months. <laughs> yeah, so that would be really nice when the guidance comes out because it's always nice to um, have that. But I think, you know, sessions like this where biodiversity is becoming more of a conversation, I think will also help with that transition. And also so many of the developers we're talking to, you know, we've got, we've got so many inquiries coming from across the country because already, however imperfectly or uh, however inconsistently enforced it is, there has been the concept of no net loss to biodiversity under the National Planning Policy Framework for a good few years mm. now. Yeah. So I do think that the more developers I speak with, of course the larger ones with a bit more budget to have this forward-thinking strategic approach to ESG and to, be, to, to biodiversity net gain definitely are preparing themselves for it, like any sensible organisation would. And again, the idea as well behind the long lead-in time before the consultations were published a couple of years ago is that we've been able to build up a network, a bank of biodiversity units that are there for those less prepared developers to have an off-the-shelf solution that's affordable, where they haven't been able to design their scheme and they haven't been able to fit it on. So we're all kind of working together to try and make sure nobody's caught with their pants down too often. Thank you very much. I'm sure everyone appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned um, 
a lack of viability, and I think that's really important. So let's let's have a let's have a conversation about that for a while. And it's not just a single issue that we're talking about viability, is it? We're looking at um, you know numerous challenges, financial challenges, practical challenges. Could you guys both go into a little bit more detail on that from from each of your perspectives in terms of this is so important, but the viability issue is one that needs to be discussed. And as you say, you know, guidance would be very, very helpful, wouldn't it? So everyone will keep an eye out for that. But, you know, for now, what are those viability issues in a bit more detail and how can developers mitigate against that? Well, the first thing I always, that always springs to mind at this point is with great power comes great responsibility. Developers do literally change the surface of this planet and do have a deep impact on the environment and the environment that, that, that is created for people to live and work. So I think with that power and that responsibility, you know, does come a lot of financial pressure. And again, if it starts to ideally get normalised and recognise the real cost to nature of development, we can just be clever about finding ways of making it viable and affordable. And when there is a big change in policy, of course there is, there is concern because there hasn't necessarily been time to build it in. But once it's settled in, there should be ways of us making it work. And again, for example, the biodiversity net gain policy is designed to make it possible to deliver gains for nature on land where there is less demand for land, where the land values are less high, where you can, use, you can be funding uh, agricultural landowners' transitions to more regenerative agricultural practices without necessarily needing to scrabble for land in high demand areas where there's a high development demand. You can still be delivering gains for nature without needing to fight for expensive land and space to do it. And that's just one example of ways that we, can, we should and will all be working together to make these uh, important policies for nature affordable. Yeah, and, and I think on that, so for all the reasons I listed previously, there's lots of different competing priorities at the moment. Um, however, the, I think the, the beautiful thing about development is there's always been competing priorities and there's always managed to find kind of that sweet spot and that solution. Um, I think, as Alexa says, it might be a bit more difficult in the, in the beginning. I'm hoping that it will get easier. I think... Things like, we do have to accept though that there are just going to be additional costs. We're going to have to do the assessments and um, make sure that there's that resource time to include it within all the planning documentation, make sure that it's then looked after, it's, it's actually delivered on site and then that it's kind of um, looked after in the long long term. I think with alongside the viability though, an important consideration is the appropriateness. Mm -hmm. Um, and Alexa, I know this is something we've touched on before, you know, if we're looking at a scheme that is very um, high density, sticking a little patch of meadow or a little patch of wildflower in the middle of that, that's not going to be as appropriate or as effective as, say, for example, some of our, our um, neighbourhoods in, in Manchester that we're, we're working on. The River Irk um, actually flows through those neighbourhoods. That's going to be a really great and appropriate space to link up to other biodiversity biodiversity and, and other kind of wildlife corridors and I think that's where it's really going to be need to be quite thoughtful in, in how we deliver that um, and again there'll be some areas within your scheme where it makes more sense um, to retain what's already there and if you can retain what's already there then that's going to bring down the cost of having to implement something else so it very much is that if we can kind of keep what's there as much as possible we're not going to be able to keep everything 
um, as much as we would like to in some cases. If we can keep what's there as possible, that's potentially a a kind of cost that then doesn't need to be spent later on down the line. And that reminds me of what you said before as well. It will also make you decide which sites to bring forward mm. as well, doesn't it? Like it actually would impact, you'd, you'd start to develop in areas that had a le uh, less of an impact on biodiversity in the first place too, which again mm. helps to achieve what the policy intention is, which is to avoid loss of biodiversity. And, and I mean, nature, given the chance to thrive, is incredible incredibly resilient as well you know and, and actually on that point that's really interesting I was having a conversation with someone the other day that say well you know some brown brownfield site actually you may think that's not very biodiversity rich but it is um, when you actually go in and do the assessments you've seen that 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 land that's kind of been left maybe for the last 10 years has flourished um, and that's a whole other consideration in itself for saying well it's not a one-size-fits-all and back to the viability one solution is not going to work on every single scheme going forward. There is going to need to be the adaptability and the flexibility to review different options out there. And I mean, I'm interested to, I've got a note here about education and upskilling and also how planning is realistically going to work. I think we've touched on the planning element a little bit, but it'd be good to go into a bit more detail on that in a minute. But in terms of education and upskilling, that's really interesting because hearing you talk about all of this is just sort of making me think that I wonder when people think about biodiversity, what are they actually thinking and, and it, does it encompass that you know what it what it is as a whole and i wonder perhaps not actually maybe people have just a very narrow vision of what what it can actually mean and mm. particularly as we're talking about things that are unexpected you know as you yeah. say brownfield sites have been left for 10 years and then absolutely flourishing and thriving um so how does the education the upskilling happen i mean we it starts by looking internally right and saying right where can we reach out and, and get like subject matter experts on this who can we speak to that know no thing or two about this um, you know, it's about saying, right, can we do CPD sessions for staff? Can we bring in our kind of uh, master planning team into those sessions? But I think the other thing that's going to be really important, and I mentioned it just a little bit ago, is educating the communities in that area. Yeah. Um, because as much as, you know, they've become accustomed to these lovely lawns, um, they're going to be getting a much more beneficial space for biodiversity. It's been proven that green space has a massive um, positive impact on people's mental well-being and, and just the well-being of a community in general. Um, I think the, the way we go about that is just through having open and honest conversations and saying, yeah, it might look a bit messy, but please don't take your own shears out there or your lawnmower and go decide to go cut it down yourself because that's really not going to be helpful in the, in the long run. And I'm sure there would be someone who maybe has a bit of time that would think that that would be appropriate. Um, but it's about having those conversations and bringing your teams along with you and being quite open and honest and that kind of culture of there's no no such thing as a silly question if you know if I don't know the answer I'll go find someone who does know the answer to your question um, and then also going out into the community and actively working with them saying what well, this is the plan is this is why we're doing this you know there's got it may have other benefits you know there may be um, kind of drainage benefits to having certain biodiversity spaces so I think it's really about kind of outlining the benefits to, mm. to everyone involved. Thank you. Alexa, any thoughts on that education side of things? Yeah, well, uh, the other thing that's interesting on our side is when we're also creating habitat banks in some often rural and agricultural areas where, to the untrained eye, you might think, wow, look at all of these green fields, this is really cool, but actually it's some of the most... Um, dire, uh, sort of derelict areas because of intensive agriculture. So our upskilling exercise is often with um, really enthusiastic and willing agricultural landowners that are keen to put part of their land holding aside 
for nature, which generally helps to improve the soil chemistry, helps to improve the pollinators and the overall abundance of the wider farm, and help, again, yes, as I said before, to transition to more regenerative agricultural practices. So there's some spilling out impacts and effects of this BNG policy that goes beyond strictly the development sector, but into wider sectors like, the ag like agriculture. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, we've already got some great questions coming through on Slido. Thank you very much for those. I'm going to get to them in a minute. Um, uh, but I just wanted to talk to you a bit about the planning side. I know we've touched on it, but in terms of how that's realistically going to, to work then, I'm sure that lots of people in, in the audience are, are already thinking that in their minds, but any insight on that? Well, technically, it should be that from the 1st of February 2024, a planning, a planning permission will be granted with an automatic pre-commencement planning condition materialising on it that says you may not commence development until a, you have a biodiversity gain plan approved by the LPA. And in that biodiversity gain plan, you would set out, these are the losses that we're going to suffer on site. These are the um, habitats we're going to retain on site. These are the losses that we're going to offset off site. And this is the land that we're going to use to offset those um, losses. Um, so in theory, it's a pre-commencement planning condition. In practice, though, a developer will want to know before they get board approval to even proceed with a, a deal with a landowner and, uh, and a scheme, before they even start thinking about planning, to know that they've got whatever they're going for can accommodate that BNG, either doing it within the boundary or through uh, access to appropriate offset solutions like biodiversity units from the private market. So even though it will appear as a pre-commencement planning condition, it will be something that sort of permeates the decision-making right from the first concept of a development happening in a particular place, as it should do, because that's where the biodiversity baseline assessments should be done on the land so that you know what land you're buying and you know what you're dealing with and you know what density of development is achievable on balance with what losses to biodiversity will occur. And I think that's another area where it's going to be really interesting. And I think it's going to be quite challenging potentially for the for the you know local planning authorities because they're expected to look at so much already. But mm. this is again, it's just another, it's another thing, incredibly important thing, but it is another thing, and it's it's it will be really interesting to see how that pans out in practice. And I don't think we'll have the answer for that until we've potentially gone through a little bit of it being in place. If that if makes you were sense. going to hazard a guess. I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I think it, I mean, it will be fine. It will need to be fine. But I just think it, we have to be understanding the fact that it is, it is going to add some workloads yeah. of people who are already potentially stretched. Like know. planning officers are finding themselves at the absolute nature battlefield between development and nature. The same with nutrient neutrality and similar, isn't it? But I think that certainly, you know, the planning advisory service, Rebecca Mobley there, has done a fantastic job of helping to create you know, the, the, for, the forums for people, for the planning authorities to really get together, share notes, share best practice, share their learning um, and gear up for this. So while there have been periods where it has felt like there's been palpable panic in the sector, I feel like it's kind of settling down now um, into something less worrying. Um, that's certainly how it feels. And, you know, some, some of the really proactive early adopter LPAs have got lots of learnings that they're, that they're sort of sharing with the rest through the planning advisory service. So, I mean, yes, 
one in 10 local authorities are on the verge of bankruptcy, not helpful. Um, there is a shortage of eco ecological expertise, that's not helpful. And the planning system is already at a very seriously log-jammed and delayed um, state. But um, uh, setting all of those things aside, there has been quite a long time to gear up for this now. Um, and again, it's not specifically new. No net loss for biodiversity has been around for a good few years now. You mentioned there actually something that I wanted to just pick up on, which is a shortage of ecological um, expertise. Um, and that's that's really interesting. And how, I mean, that's, that's a broader issue, isn't it? I mean, what we're talking about now is, is specifically about um, BNG, but that as a broader issue, how do we tackle that? Because that's, that's, a, that's an issue that, that would make everything that we're talking about a lot easier if it were to be addressed and rectified in some way. Well, I think it's already starting to happen because um, ecologists are finally getting paid properly for the work they do, which hasn't really been the case until now. Um, they're finally feeling like a valid and important part of the development process rather than a, a sort of demon that's bringing bad news to a developer. Um, they are a, a strategic and important part of development in a way that they are valued and that is encouraging more people to come into that sector through the universities and through their training. So there's a lot of work being done now to improve a diverse access to ecological consultancy as a career, retraining. A load of the lawyers that I used to work with are all saying they want to be ecologists now. Um, so it, I think there's a natural consequence. With any new thing like this, there will be a shortage, but that should reach a level of equilibrium as the pay and the opportunities <coughs> start to catch up with, uh, with, with it, and it encourages people to join the sector. Faye, any thoughts to add on that? I, yeah, I think that sums it up perfectly and I think you know skill shortages are not necessarily a unique challenge for biodiversity no. net gain in the sector so I think you know there's um, any kind of good news um, coming to the sector I think is actually really positive um, you know once it's been done it's been done well um, you know en masse I think people will be encouraged and you know potentially grow up and saying oh I want to be an ecologist instead of I want to be you know a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is so it's it's about outlining, and I think that also comes down to the engagement, you know, when, when we go to schools or when we, like, you know, speak to universities, how can we help promote that potentially as a really valuable career for people to be looking at? Well, a couple, a couple of good, really great questions that have come through here, so let's, let's go into some of these. So, how does a developer balance green spaces for people, sports, play, etc., and for conserving uh, diverse species under the DEFRA matrix? So exactly, really good question. Really, the two do not sit side by side as neatly as you'd like. Uh, the, the, the impact of human beings and pets and similar, and children, they're humans too, just, but <laughs> the impact of them all on the green spaces for nature is significant and it needs to be taken into account in the metric, like what the impact of the surrounding use might have on those gains for nature. So again, we think it's really crucial that... Um, developers and ecologists are not over-optimistic about what can be kind of squeezed on site because it really will undermine the uh, purpose of the legislation and the policy. And you run the risk of planning officers and their ecologists saying, we're really sorry, but, you know, lowland meadow is not achievable here, not in this way. You're going to have to rethink. And it's a creative process of making sure that you are getting that balance right. And it won't be easy. And again, that is where off-site solutions should be there to 
show that there is a viable way to delivering the gains for nature in a way that isn't really compromising that or compromising the experience of the residents and the, 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 the dwelling owners at your schemes. So, you know, you've got to make sure that there is space for the children to play. That won't always be where the long grass and the snakes are. And that comes down to considered master planning, right? That comes down to looking at the, the space that you've got available and saying, right, how can we zone this so that there is the space for people, so that there is the space for, for nature to thrive? I think one of the areas that, that we're trying to remain quite cognizant of and, and I think is very important to note is that we can't have biodiversity becoming a postcode lottery. We can't have it where, you know, because you're in a certain area, you don't have access or there is no biodiversity around you. Um, and that kind of then comes to that off-site solution, doesn't it? And I think that's going to be one of the things for us to look at. I know, you know, if we look at renewable energy, for example, the best practice is that you buy it within that geography. Obviously, the geography of the United Kingdom is, is, is large, but it's about saying, well, if we're going to be, um, you know, purchasing off-site solutions or reviewing the off-site solutions, actually, how local can that be to still benefit that mm -hmm. community? Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's a really important point that we that maybe the legislation doesn't necessarily, you know, touch on too deeply because at the moment it's, it's get everyone doing this right, but it's about doing it in a way that's going to benefit that community that you are going into. Um, I've had a couple of questions here actually that are similar, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them together. But some questions around how the legislation is going to be enforced. Um, you know, if a, it says here first, it says small developer, but any developer doesn't provide BNG um, within the 30-year management plan. How will it be monitored? How will it be policed? And what penalties will be imposed if there's a fail, fail or a default? Mm -hmm. So that's a really good question. So at the moment, the burden of enforcement is typically going to be with local planning authorities, who so far, the planning authorities we've spoken with, actually want that oversight and control over how gains are delivered in their local planning authority area. The policy also envisages responsible bodies cropping up, which will be um, appointed and regulated by DEFRA, which will have a responsibility to monitor. They will be entitled to enter into conservation covenants that would be used to enforce and govern habitat banks or on-site delivery or off-site delivery. But it is, there is real risk of enforcement gaps, um, and that's something that DEFRA say is, this, you know, this is the beginning of the journey. And they're going to be looking and seeing how things unfold, looking to see what, where, what parts of the system are being exploited, um, what, how successful are these gains for nature in their actual delivery, and what can we do to make it really work? And can responsible bodies take some of that oversight burden away? And that's where developers must factor in the cost of monitoring and enforcement because local planning authorities will expect annual payments or commuted payments to cover their costs of monitoring and enforcement on those on-site gains. And that's something that does need to be budgeted for. I'm going to open um, up to questions from the floor in just a minute. But there's one question here that, that's, that's just jumped out that's quite interesting um, around the percentages. Um, doesn't a 10% gain mean it's more difficult to achieve if the site is already quite diverse? So wouldn't developers prefer lower diversity sites to start? Definitely. It will incentivise you to develop on already depleted landscapes. And it should disincentivise you 
from developing on biodiversity, biodiversity rich landscapes. Mm -hmm. And an example of a, a pants down situation that one of our clients found themselves in was it was a, an ecologically depleted landscape because of, of intensive agriculture. Over the years, it effectively became, became meadow and it became biodiverse rich. And they've been really stuck now because they didn't baseline at that time or at least allow, which is totally legitimate, allow the continued agricultural use to continue until you're ready to start on site. So a word of warning is just be aware of your baseline and do allow the continued uses to continue until you're ready to start on site. And that's not to let nature lose any battle. It's more to you don't want to be letting nature emerge just when it's about to get ripped up again. Um, so, yeah, there's a few sort of words of warning there. Um, but, yes, you should. this policy should be incentivising you to build on less diverse landscapes. And I think that's also where it's important to recognise that there is that no one-size-fits-all solution to this, right? Every, every piece of land is going to be slightly different and the approach within that development will need to be slightly different. Thank you very much. Are there any questions from the floor? We have a few minutes. Oh, yes, we've got one at the front here. Thank you very much. Andrew Ross from Global Garden. There's a notable absence in this room of insurers and asset managers from the city. Is the Environment Bank going to be issuing a green bond? Because the UK is at the bottom of the international G7 league for issuing any kind of green bond. Okay, so I, so I take bond to mean two different things. So one is that we bond our management payments for the 30 years so that they're guaranteed in the event of our insolvency. Two is a bond as a financial instrument to be sold into the market, a reinsurance market or retail market. So good question. I don't know the answer to the second one, but I'll try and find one. Um, and also, if we're talking about insurance in general, we've tried to look at insurance for BNG as a biodiversity net gain as an asset class, but the, the market is a bit, still a bit confused because they think it's crop loss insurance, and that's not what we're really talking about. But So I don't know the answer to your green bond question, but we can find out. But I do know the answer to my bond question that I've asked myself, which is we do put our management payments into bond for 30 years so they're guaranteed in the event of our insolvency. So I answered my own question there. <laughs> That's not actually an investment. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and it's a good question also about whether biodiversity units themselves could be tradable assets. So, again, that's all going to rely on policy. What will policy allow? Because very much a biodiversity unit of gain is related to the development that it is offsetting, and it must be linked to that. So the idea of a secondary market is a tricky one because one unit of grassland created here isn't worth the same if it is offsetting a development there than if it is offsetting a development there. So there are a few geographic peculiarities and, fragment and fragmentation that makes the idea of a neat tradable asset class quite tricky. But that's not to say we're not up for trying to solve it. Thank you very much. Any other questions? There's some other great ones that have come through on Slido, if not. So we've got a couple of minutes. So, oh, oh, sorry, is there... Why? Oh, sorry, just in, sorry. Um, 
Ellie Orford from Nuveen. Uh, will there be a centralised database of for the offsetting so that there isn't any double counting or risk of manipulation there? Yeah, so there will be a Natural England register, which will be a register of all off-site um, biodiversity gain sites, and in the near future should expand to on-site biodiversity gain sites too. The idea there is it's more of a regulatory mechanism to ensure that you have a bona fide Natural England thumbs-up gain site. The, the indication so far is that it wouldn't be a searchable register of gain sites. They're envisaging that the private market would come up with stuff like that. And what we're seeing pepper-potted around is different um, land agents, uh, di um, the CLA, various different organisations are putting together their own register of, of gain sites. But it is a bit disjointed and it's not necessarily that helpful at the moment for developers or others to just be able to pick and choose um, but, but it should be something that the market matures into. And I think that maturity is going to be really interesting. We've seen it with renewable energy credits. We've seen it with carbon offsets and neutralisation removals, whatever, whatever you want to refer to it as. And, and what we've kind of seen in those markets is as the demands increase, so has the cost, and that there's not necessarily been able to keep up with the supply um, because there's not been the supply there to meet the demand. And I think that's going to be a really interesting um, kind of, you know, consideration as we go forward is, are we going to see that same thing with biodiversity credits, essentially mm -hmm. saying, well, are they going to increase in price because more people are going to need them? And then how is that supply? And I know the Environment Bank's been working on this, but how is that supply actually going to match mm -hmm. the demand? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Well, we're coming to the end of our session now, but there are a couple of questions here. So this one's an interesting one. I don't know who's going to want to take this one, or maybe maybe both of you. Um, with the viability of developments under pressure, what should take precedence, jobs or plants? Ooh, I would say plants because <laughs> I would, wouldn't I? But I do I feel like... You didn't miss the beat. <laughs> I, I do feel like once everything's underwater, what, what, what is that space going to be used for? Like, I don't want to sound too catastrophic, but we've got to have a livable space before we can work in it because we've got to be alive first is what I say. And I'm going to sit firmly on the fence and say that both are a priority and there needs to be a balance and as we've kind of discussed um, these new requirements do lead to a different variety of jobs being mm. available so I think it's not we can't make make a choice people need a livelihood but people also need somewhere to live but biodiversity needs to thrive. Unfortunately, we just have to manage as best as we can. Thank you very much. I'm asking this question because it's really piqued my interest, but I'm not quite sure how, how it would work. Maybe, I, I don't know whether you guys know how it works, or maybe, I, maybe I'm just behind the times, and this is very much at the fore, but will AI, will AI play a role in educating the communities and accelerate BNG? I'm sure it will. I mean, it's <laughs> going to play a role in everything, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it will at some point. Yeah, I mean... Um, actually really funny I was, I was speaking to my dad and I said to him oh I'm coming to chat about biodiversity today and he said well I don't know what that is and he brought up chat GPT and he asked chat GPT to write me a, a, a couple of minutes opening speech for this conference itself um so <laughs> whoever asked that question the answer yeah. is absolutely it, yes. it's happening <laughs> yeah it's you happening yourself. <laughs> yeah and I read it and it wasn't bad <laughs> 
Well, that's, I was, I was umming and ahhing over asking that question, and I'm very glad I did. Um, so we, our time is up, but before, before we, uh, we step down from the stage, I just wanted to ask you both one final question. It's going to put you totally on the spot, but I'm hoping that you'll have an answer ready to go. Is that where is the, your absolute favourite place, each of you, to go, where you think this is, this is it, this is what biodiversity looks like, this is how it should look. It doesn't have to be somewhere that balances development necessarily. It can just be a beautiful place in nature. But where is the place? I'll say the place that was really striking to me was where I went for a markets advisory group meeting with DEFRA and Natural England, and it was in a council estate with the most beautiful biodiversity-inspired landscape around it. And I just loved how that worked beautifully in that scheme. And it's very rare to see so much nature in a council estate setting in central London. And I personally loved that and found it really striking. Not exactly where our business is at, but certainly what I thought was really striking and something I'd love to see coming through. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go with um, the common. Um, I live in West Sussex, and there's ditching common there. And in it, at a certain time of year, it's filled with ferns. and I find nothing more joyous than watching my niece and nephew running around pretending to be Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> well, two excellent answers for two very different reasons. So thank you so much. Can everybody please join me in thanking Alexa and Faith so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Alexa and Faith, for giving us such wonderful insight and sharing your time with EG. Thank you for listening. For other podcasts recorded live at our ESG Summit or for any other news analysis or data, head to egi.co.uk slash news.